Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. Today, we're going to talk about a hidden gem in primary care that nobody really talks about or knows about, and it's called the South Central Foundation's NUCA System of Care. What can we learn from the only healthcare entity to win the Malcolm Baldridge Award, which is a national quality award you've heard of, twice in healthcare, and it's won it uh, twice in the last 10 years. So today's show has a ton of little gold nuggets, so pay attention and you can start mining for gold, Alaskan gold, and everybody's going to learn something today, I promise. It's a great story and has a lot in common with the digital first direct contracted care that we celebrate on this show, free healthcare. Nuka Alaska is what I'll call it going forward because it's a long name otherwise. And it's a community owned, uber profitable medical system despite a relatively low spend and the employee and the customer satisfaction rates are 95 and 97%, near perfect. And their outcomes are consistently in the top quartile and top deciles of HEDIS measures. HEDIS measures things like cancer and heart and asthma and diabetes. Um, how are they doing in relation to their peers? And they're in the top quartile or top 10% reliably. So let's call this what it is. It's a world-class advanced primary care system offering, but for half the cost of what it would cost in the lower 49, if you will. The Alaska Native Health System is in fact a globally admired system delivering primary care and by extension, great healthcare overall in a unique model divorced from the tyranny of premiums, deductibles, and co-pays. Again, it's sounding more familiar. So it's financially frictionless. Here's what Don Berwick, who ran CMS for Obama said, I think it's the leading example of healthcare redesign in the nation, perhaps in the world. Here the whole person, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness is in context for all 65,000 of the members. Who are most well who are alaskan and native american indian customer owners i didn't say patients i said customer owners casinos on reservations are sort of a yucky way to make a profit and gambling addiction that goes with it is kind of fooey when you have a profit model like this that has a noble cause so how about instead a healthcare system that really works for profit free clinics versus slots you decide what makes more sense now nuka so you understand what it means is an alaskan native term that means strong giant structures and living things, which you'll understand by the end of today is a perfect name. And while we're on language, let's talk about the language the NUCA system uses. Everybody is a customer owner, not a patient, because it implies a more active, less paternalistic title and entitlements. And instead of having exam rooms, they're doctor-centric, so they're talking rooms, which is exactly what an exam room should be. There's 17 of these community centers spread out all over Alaska. Don't talk about compliant and non-compliant patients because those are derogatory doctor-centric terms, not patient-centric. Leadership calls these words out as physician-centric arrogance. I like that. 
There's a lot more words, but just giving a taste of how these folks think. So you're getting the idea of a customer centricity versus physician centricity, a frictionless care versus transaction volume centric care prevalent in the Lord of 49 and Nuka adopted virtual primary care before it was cool at a much higher than 1% adoption rate, but they had to pre pandemic and we'll explain why in a second. It's been virtual a long time because let's do a quick geography lesson. Everybody knows how big Alaska is, but to put it in context, I'm from Texas. If Alaska were laid over Texas, it's two and a half times the size of Texas to give it a context. And if you took Alaska and put it on Texas and flipped it northwest, east or south, you'd hit all four borders. You'd hit all the oceans. You'd hit actually deep south past Mexico. So it's a giant state and you could in fact throw Texas, California, Montana, plus a bunch of baby states to round it all out. And you're still not the square mileage of Alaska. Imagine you laid Alaska on Western Europe. It covers pretty much and blots out all of Western Europe, except for Scandinavia. It's big. You got to do virtual care when you have 65,000 members spread over Europe, basically. And here's the cool thing in their spin. It's about two-thirds of the person of the U.S. average. But if you look at their chronic conditions that this population have, it's really half. It's $7,500. It's not what it should be, which is $15,000 to cost for this higher-risk population. It's half. Very cool. Again, tons of hypertension, lots of diabetes, lots of addiction, et cetera, but it's all about team with this approach. And we're going to learn all about that, how that works today. What declines when you have this team taking care of a customer member instead of a patient is you have like a Chen Med. It's a team approach focused on real relationships. We've had them on the show before, so you're going to have lower labs. You're going to have lower specialty visits. You're going to have lower imaging with Nuka. We don't need all that volume, all that over-testing and all those over-labs, all those over-treatments. All that overage, over-utilization, we call it, with hospital admissions go way down by 40%, ER visits by almost the same 36% with Nuka. It drops when you have an intense focus on primary care and a team approach. So this all sounds very familiar to you direct contracting fans that we talk about on this show about a lot because it predates direct contracting, actually. When they started this redo of primary care scaled and healthcare by extension was 1995. Okay, so let's talk about no more middlemen. Caterpillar for 15 years has had no middlemen and they've been divorcing of themselves of it and they've had flat healthcare costs for all 15 years. They are a model. Nuka is exactly doing the same thing. The tyranny of financial friction is gone when you eliminate all these premiums, copays, and deductibles too. Again, as I said, when you get rid of those, you have financial architecture of shared skin in the game. Let's talk about no more middlemen, which is exactly what Caterpillar has done the last 15 years. Caterpillar has kept their healthcare costs flat by firing all the middles, and there's lots of them, PBMs, hospitals, insurance companies. So we were told back in the 80s, you got to have some skin in the game, so there's got to be copays, deductibles, and patients, but the truth is that's been proven untrue, not only with direct primary care models, but with the NUCA system. So it's not like you have skin in the game when you make these copays, which was the original purpose and intent of deductibles and copays. It's more like your liver's in the game because most people can't achieve the deductibles. They don't reach them when they are $4,500 and most Americans have under 500 in the bank. So you don't really have insurance if you can't use it. It's not insurance, it's not even healthcare. If you're functionally uninsured, what we call that, and well over half all Americans are, then that is not insurance. And the bulk of Americans make under 20 an hour. Functional uninsurance is the number one or two problem in America with healthcare nobody's talking about. You got it, you can't use it. 
there's so there's a rich system and a poor system. And that, as I said, is I think the biggest problem. So I want to describe the Nuka integrated care team to save time on this interview, because this is really a great show. I want you to hear from our guests today what it really looks like and feels like, but their primary care and behavioral integrated team at 17 clinics looks like this. Imagine a big room with a specialist. You have a PCP and an RN case manager and case management support administrative. Then you have a dietitian, a midwife, a certified medical assistant, maybe a nurse midwife. You got some mid-levels, nurse practitioners and PAs, and you have maybe a colorectal screener and other behavioral health uh, assistants. So if you have mid-levels and you have a colorectal screener and you have behavioral health specialists and pharmacists all working cooperatively, not an individual office has been in a big room cooperatively with a team approach. Every member knows the name of every pharmacist that's in their team, their nurse practitioner, their midwife. They know each other for generations sometimes. The customer knows the team and the team knows the customer. This is a beautiful way to think about each encounter. The way they think about each encounter is what is the story behind the customer owner's eyes? That's pretty refreshing. I can't wait to welcome to the show and introduce you to Steve Tierney. I can't wait to enter... I can't wait to welcome to the show and introduce you to Steve Tierney, who's a family practice doctor who's been with him since this transformation began in 1995. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for the lovely intro. <laughs> I watch so many hours of video to get this intro down right because I don't want to waste time explaining how the model lights up. I want to talk about the softer skills. Can we talk about the soft stuff and maybe get into the harder stuff later? Sure. Yeah. Um... What we realized is uh, healthcare had over-engineered itself to say that no matter what, every encounter will be built exactly the same because just in case it could be a tumor or something quite serious. Um, and so they would build the whole process as if you had to do a almost medical school level history and physical the time that you show up. Now, the reality is most people are much more straightforward than this. I mean, they need simple things in a medical home, refills of medications, have questions about uh, you know, a medication they took several years ago that maybe they wanna try again for their allergies or their skin rash. I mean, it's very, very straightforward things. And, and if you add to that all of the things that are required, um, we realized about 85% of all the prescriptions and lab orders were all repeats or refills. So we, we realized we were spending a tremendous amount of energy to do what we already knew was going to be done and the time it was gonna to need to be done. So we said, well, what if we just made only the full court press, heavy handed, full on evaluation only required when it was absolutely necessary and then smoothed all of the rest of them it, it, by removing referrals, removing you know uh, process times, and making things quite simple, and those were the things that we had to work with physicians to say, if you know the person's on this med, if you know they're successful with it, and you know their labs are up to date and in control, then evaluating them doesn't add to your base of knowledge or value for that encounter. You just want to proceed. Uh, and you can even do so through a surrogate. But we had to train them to say, uh, work via a team through another person like your case manager 
or your case manager support, as opposed to doing this as a solo act yourself during each and every individual encounter. The Native American has the highest uninsured rate in America by far, Steve, much more than any other minority group, probably for a lot of factors, but you don't have any of that problem here in Alaska because how you design this, is that correct? Yes, and what we did was we coached our workforce to say it's irrelevant for what you do for this customer owner, uh, what payer they have. Uh, so we're going to treat them all the same. And if they do have a payer, we'll um, manage whatever we can recover on the back end. And if they don't, it still doesn't matter. But it means our approach, the workflow, and the team integration efforts and work sharing will be the same. So it, it just sort of leaned up our entire sort of operational approach. Uh, but it took a lot of reorienting for a workforce to say, um, if somebody has a positive depression screen, and your medical assistant knows that you typically would always ask the behaviorist to you know, step in and just check in with them, then they can do so directly without waiting for an order or specific instructions by their primary care provider since they had already done the screener and since they had already found it to be positive, they could just proceed to the next logical step without specific instructions. So I've watched tons of videos of how your medical assistants do their screening and their intake. And it's so much more thorough than any screening I've ever seen in hundreds of screenings. It's not really a patient history. It's a spiritual history. It's a lifestyle history. I mean, it's psychographic and demographic and data graphic. It's incredible. It's very deep. It's very wide. It seems like you've deputized the medical assistants to, I'm not going to say diagnose the problem, but to really give the doctor a crystal clear laser beam insight about what's going on here. Well, what we found when the same team works with the same number of customer owners, over time, everyone on the team begins to know them as if they were extended family members. So it's not like you need to do a specific screener to know somebody's a little off their game. You know them well enough to be able to say, hey, you doing okay? Um, what's going on for you? Um, what are you worried about? And since every member of the team already has a pre-established relationship with each customer owner, it's easy to cross that sort of gulf of, you know, normally they might not feel comfortable taking that sort of a risk. But what we've done is empower the team to say, if you know already exactly what the answer is, please proceed and inform the rest of the team. And if it is leaned up from the normal business as usual, that's actually better. I love the way you talk to your members. We are all about shaming in the rest of North America. Get your eyesight fixed, you're gonna kill somebody. In a car, get your diabetes handled, so you're gonna lose your feet. Stop eating so much bad processed food. What y'all talk about sounds more like, do you wanna continue doing the hunt with your grandson because this is how you're gonna stay healthy and be able to do it longer. It's sort of a beautiful transformation of shame into basically reward. Well, one of the things we've worked hard on is regaining time to have a person-to-person, -person, more humanistic encounter. So instead of banging through 30 appointments a day just to keep your access, doing them all one size fits all, we actually do longer visits. And since we know them and we've seen them before, it's easier to fast forward to say, hey, did you get a chance to go fishing? I, I know, you know, it's fish camp season, but Normally, you're not here in August, you know, what's happening for you? Uh, 
you, you can't get to know that in a sort of transactional, you know, move through as many interactions as possible and do so with process. What we try to do is do it more with relationship to be able to say, listen, I know you would do the right thing for your diabetes. I know pretty much everybody would, but you're not. Tell me what it is that's happening for you that's making that a challenge. Maybe we can help. Because what we're realizing is the exact same goals that the healthcare system and the healthcare workforce has, customer owners have the exact same goals. If we make it easy for them, they will actually just simply do it. And when they don't, we know, ah, there must be something that's creating a barrier for you. Um, tell me more about that. Tell me how we could help or tell me how we can make adjustments because we know you don't want to be unhealthy. We know you want to join us in our goals. And when you're not, there must be something we're missing. Share with us what that could be like and share with us how we could help you. Your foundational supposition is that every consumer is smart and wants to do better. Whereas I think it's not fair to do broad swipes, but I think a lot of physicians in the rest of America are thinking these patients are dumb and they don't do anything I tell them to do anyway. They're not complying with their meds. They're not complying with their exercise. They're not eating differently after I tell them what to do. You know, they gained three pounds since I saw them six months ago. Dumb guy, dumb consumer, dumb patient. But that's not y'all's attitude at all. Your attitude at the NUCA system is really that the customer is smart and they just need to know what to do next. Is that a good summary? Yes. Yeah, so one of the most uh, interesting moments that I had as a you know medical director is when I noticed that uh, staff, when a customer wouldn't get the, the referral to the specialist in a timely fashion, wouldn't get something else, they would get mad because they were invested personally in the outcome of this individual. And I'm like, okay, so this is no longer you're just punching buttons and processing widgets. This is, um, this matters to you. And when it does matter to you, you begin to feel more comfortable saying, listen, I know you do well with your diabetes and I know now you're not. What, what's happening, you know, are, are you, and, and that's how we get to the deeper issues that truly drive healthcare when it goes off the rails. Well, I'm going through a divorce and I'm trying to cook for myself, but the only thing I do is go to the carry out and, you know, uh, and normally I used to, you know, have dinner with my spouse, but now that's not the case anymore. Oh man, well, your diabetes is the least of our worries. Well, we got to deal with this. How is this affecting your life? You know, it helps you gain perspective into what makes people tick. And with that perspective, you can actually find out how could we actually redirect this instead of doing the almost insulting behavior, well, I'm going to refer you to the diabetic education specialist so they can school you on this diabetes that you've had for 15 years that you have already demonstrated the ability to do well with, and now you're not. Because that's the normal default setting. Poor control of diabetes, have the health educator check in. We would actually say poor control by diabetes, what's going on? This is not the case. This is not how it's been, but it is now. What do we need to do? Um, but you need the space and you need the relationship to say, wait a minute. 
you know how to take care of this. You know what your insulin is. You know, um, something's going wonky. What's going on for you? But that's not something you can do with somebody who you just met and you never will meet again. We're obsessed in America with digital solutions to things like diabetes. When it's what you're proving, like in what Verta Health did, is proving what their model does is to be extremely successful is that you can maintain and reverse diabetes with a team approach, not an app. A digital app's not going to say what's going on. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, enticing to believe we can fix things by throwing more money at it. And tech is always a sort of a default. Ah, we just get the fancy, you know, machine. If we get to the fancy glucose monitor and we, but what we learn is you actually do not need to monitor your diabetes with regular finger sticks. If you have a stable sort of controlled environment that uh, is supportive for you. You can kind of get in the zone and people do things pretty much the same way most days, unless they can't. And when they can't, that's why we got to find out why can't you, what changed up for you and adding a glucometer to you um, and telling you to take more finger sticks when we know, you know, you're likely just going to put this on the shelf and not use it, but I'll feel comforted that I've given you some tech. Um, you know, uh, now if you want the tech, that's fine. Yeah, get you off my back. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I need to check a box to make this seem like I did something, even if it may be a disingenuous something. So let's get into some of the hard numbers because I want to understand the model a bit better. It seems like if I take 65,000 Native Americans in 17 clinics, that's about 3,850 panel or about 4,000 per clinic. And I assume you're so geographically spread out your members are is that about right or do you have two or three providers at each clinic and at least that are primary care uh, is it really a panel size not four thousand is more like two thousand or fifteen hundred what's right here that's about right um, and some of our clinics have more providers because they're larger so there'll be uh five or six and some of our clinics are more, in more remote loca locations where there'll only be two or three um uh, but so the, but I would say a good average is maybe four per clinic with a panel size of about uh, 12 to 1400 people. Okay. I get that there's two or 300. I'm going to call them providers and support staff that are immediately in the clinics, but y'all have 2,500 employees. What are the other 2,300 doing? Help me understand because I know it's not simply clinical. We spend a tremendous amount of time on data extraction. Uh, so we have an entire, you know, 12 person data team. We have a research team that actually has uh, uh, 12 PhD researchers, all of whom are native, uh, you know, travel members. Um, we have a very robust, uh, um, you know, a tech system because there's a lot of tech that we need to, to connect as we virtually interact with a small village of 25 people on the Yukon Kuskokwim River, uh, 300 miles away as the supervising provider. Um, and then of course, we put way more than your average healthcare company into training. So we realized that one of the things that you didn't show up with, with your normal doctor, nurse, you know, behaviorist uh, um, you know, degree was the ability to work on a team.
you were indoctrinated to think of yourself as a solo act independent of everyone else. And we said, wow, well, this is not intuitive and we can't leave it to chance. So we're going to put a tremendous amount of hours per clinician per year. And so we have a very robust, um, uh, we call it development center, where we have all of our training staff, where we do all of our trainings in-house. I'm going to assume that it's a no-brainer. Let's talk about your specialists and specialist referrals. It's a no-brainer that you have your own surgeons in routine surgery, and you have your own cardiologists and endocrinologists, but there's 120 specialties, and you don't need all 120 in Fernuka. You can refer to a larger Alaska system, I'm assuming, with a lot of the unusual stuff. How do you interact with a larger Alaskan health system that North America traditionally offers? The, the larger health system actually serves the entire state of which we are one of the 12 tribal health organizations. Now, we're the largest of the tribal health organizations, but there are people in Bethel, in Kotzebue, in, in Juneau that are also referring in to our cardiologist. So our cardiology department's not massive. It has six cardiologists for the entire state. And so we would use that amongst the other tribal health organizations. The way we we uh, interact with the specialist, like the surgeon, like the neurologist, like the uh, endocrinologist, is we say, we're going to send you things that it's clear that you have the special skills for. So if you're a cardiologist, I'm going to send you to uh, send someone to see you if you need a cath, a stint, a treadmill, an echo, a stress echo. But once you determine what the diagnosis is, once you come up with a plan, then I will take back over the refill of the somatostatin, of the carvedilol, of the digoxin, and monitoring the labs to absolve you of sort of doing this more grunt refill work and also open up your access. So the next time I call you, you can see somebody quickly. So our cardiologist, as an example, as a result of this, uh, have a routine referral wait time of about four business days for routine. If it's a little bit more pressing, we can get same day. But it means we had to clear their plate by taking back a lot of this sort of once you're on Dig, once you're on Lasix, once you're on Cavetalol, those are refills we can manage. And if you tell us what labs we got to keep an eye on, no problem. We'll take care of that too. Uh, so you also own your own surgery center and you have a Da Vinci, for example, and you can do more complex surgeries that are beyond labor and delivery, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, what happens when you're baffled by a rare condition? And I know there's not a single burn unit in all of Alaska. A lot of those come here to San Antonio, where I live. And cancer care is very rare, too, if non-existent in Alaska. Are there some cases where you have to send the members down to the lower 48? Yes. Yeah, so we have cooperative relationships with, like, uh, Seattle Children's or Fred Hutch. You know, we do have a cancer specialist, but the, if there are things outside the normal scope of our workforce, and capacity, we'll send them away. And we have uh, business agreements with um, some places in Seattle or some other places. Okay, all right. When you're baffled by a rare condition, do you have others you consult with in the larger system that can help you solve the crime scene of what's going on in there? Yes, we do. Uh, and, and it depends upon what the condition is and what the age, if it's a more pediatric population, then we have a relationship with uh, you know, a Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, but we have... Uh, you know, sort of a, uh, I would call it the primary tier, 
and then the secondary tier with the majority of the subspecialist. But then we would have tertiary tiers to say, well, you need a valve replacement, which is a unique specialist thing that not a tremendous amount of people in this state of Alaska do. And we're going to send you to Providence Hospital where they will do valve surgeries with supporting the cardiothoracic surgeon, okay. which we don't have on staff. All right. I'm going to assume that Nuka is one of the largest employers, if not the largest in the tribe. Hiring family can be a privilege, but it also can be a pain in the butt too. Does that ever pose a challenge for you guys? Not necessarily. Uh, we actually uh, have a, a, we have in some cases, people that are the fourth generation that are working in the healthcare system. Um, so, you know, they have come in sometimes very often at age 18 um, after their grandparents worked here and have worked and now are with the company um, 20 years before the age of 40. Uh, that's neat. What are your big challenges you have to face every day as quality control position for? You got to make sure the medical economics work, but you also got to make sure that the outcomes work. So how do you balance that? The biggest single challenge is, I would say, the uh, extremely process-centric sort of mental model of the Joint Commission, CMS, uh, and the insurance agencies, where they will say, you need to do this very significant amount of documentation for every interaction that you have, irregardless of, I just need to refill my hydrocortisone to I'm having new headaches that are leading me to have blindness in one eye. Um, so the problem is, is that the EHR that we have is one of the very few high-tech certified you know, EHR platforms that's meaningful use compliant and I will say as software, it is poor in quality. So it takes a tremendous amount of training, tremendous amount of work, and it operates quite slowly. And it uh, is chock full of mandatory process steps, which in most cases are completely unnecessary, but absolutely necessary if you want to be able to bill for your services. So we're stuck with them. And what we found is, in most cases, you really don't need to do a full-on H&P history to refill somebody's lead center pro. You don't. But CMS, if you want to bill for that encounter, makes you do so. You work with Medicare, obviously, and getting paid by Medicare for your older population. We do. Well, we, and we have probably about 40% of our population is Medicare or Medicaid eligible uh, with uh, uh, another maybe 15 to 20% who have private insurance, like Aetna, State Farm, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, but then about 40% has no insurance payer at all. Um, but our teams still have to do the same workflow as if we're going to bill even when we're not going to, because we're coaching them to say, pretend like it doesn't matter to you and you don't even know if they have a payer. Just do the same workflow but we're married to during this very labor intensive workflow just to make sure that we get paid even for the very simplest of interactions. Okay, just to sum up, Steve, I think you have an extremely high, high 90s uh, customer satisfaction, physician satisfaction rate. You have extremely low cost compared to the rest of the country. You're in the top quarter or 10% decile for the HEDIS metrics. Uh, and you've done it for half the cost basically for this high risk population. So the beautiful thing is you're being studied around the world by other countries, aren't you? I would say we have uh, 
probably over, is it, what is it, Ms. Tanya, 4,000 different interactions over the past 15 years or so, all across the world from Singapore to, you know, Western Europe to, uh, to Southeast Asia to um, Canada. I mean, pretty much everywhere in between. Did the pandemic prove that your model is not only resilient, but really the model of the future? I know your virtual care percentages are dramatically higher than the 1% we have in the lower 48. What was easy for us is since we already had a clear established relationship with a clearly listed number of people, uh, then shifting to the phone, shifting to video was actually quite comfortable because these were people that already knew us, we already knew them. And so we didn't have to really sort of depend on a very labor intensive sort of, let me get to know you for the very first time, you know, sort of interaction. We could say, yeah, yeah, we're, we're keeping everybody safe. We're working from home in some cases. We're on our, you know, video, but, um, you know, we already know each other well. What do you need? It was easy for us to do that. And then back again, as we needed to bring you back in the building, because there is some things, you know, like, you know, cervical cancer screening or colorectal cancer screening that you do need to do in person. Uh, but it was easy for us to flip back and forth as sort of COVID cases went up or down. So if folks want to reach out to you, Steve, to learn more, what's the best way to find you? We have an entire institute called the NUCA Institute. It is online. We have regular conferences that are both in person or virtual. And uh, we actually will do consults either to have you attend our site or we uh, do offsite consults all the time. I, I think uh, I'm doing one in California in uh, the week of the 13th of September uh, for a couple of days who uh, an organization said, come down, take a look at us and give us some you know, review of our workflow, our process, our staffing package. You know, so because they're thinking about making some change. Okay, I don't even know why I'm asking this question because there's a 97% chance that you love your job. So I don't even want to ask that question. But if you could fly a banner over the rest of America with a single message, what would that message be for all healthcare to see? Make it about the people, not the process. We have fallen in love with mandatory process steps and assumed that that will make us get to know people and what's happening for them more. What we've learned is if you skip the process steps and spend time getting to know somebody well, you don't need the process steps. The process steps are something we fell in love with because we thought that by not knowing them, we could fix that gap by just doing huge, huge amounts of process. What we learned is knowledge of a person's life, of a person's struggle, of a person's change, of their story was vastly superior in performance clinically with operational outcomes and cost outcomes than any list of processes that you could do. Steve Tierney, thank you for your time. Tanya, thank you for setting this up and we'll check in with you again soon because you guys are a fun story to follow. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.